0: Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation. Fin remember, Columbus, Ohio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: this is the bloomberg surveillance podcast i'm lisa abramowitz along with tom Keane and jonathan farrow join us each day for insight from the best in economics geopolitics finance and investment subscribe to bloomberg surveillance on demand on apple spotify and anywhere you get your podcasts and always on bloomberg.com the bloomberg terminal and the bloomberg business app
2: lindsey rosner joins us now portfolio manager at pgm fixed income lindsey wonderful to catch up with you we were lucky to catch up with your colleague Greg Peters on Sunday evening to talk about contingent convertibles, Cocos, AT1s, all those good things which turn out to be bad things. Lindsay, why have you managed your risk around those securities differently to maybe other shops? And I'm thinking Invesco, Pimco, which reportedly are holding the bag on this one.
3: Yeah, I think Greg said it best. Um, The documentation around these kind of instruments have been particularly murky. And we hadn't felt that we needed to go further down in the capital structure to really take advantage of the banks that we like. Um, we really like U.S. money centered banks, um, particularly in the hold co-paper. Uh, we think that that looks really good. And we've had a lot of opportunities with a lot of concessions in the past few months to buy banks much cheaper. Hadn't needed to go into this risky thing and obviously have been rewarded for staying away from it.
1: That said, Lindsay, there is a question about some of the regional banks and the credit of them and whether there needs to be some sort of premium baked in because of the uh, potential greater risks of less regulation and more deposit beta.
3: I think that's absolutely true. And that's also been our thesis, that we want to be in the big U.S. money-centered banks that got all that extra regulation after 2008. The idea that these regional banks were smaller, maybe less important to the structure, I think we've all learned that is not the case. Um, haven't been compensated in terms of spreads, and haven't gone there specifically. I think something that you just talked about earlier, which is the kind of Main Street versus Wall Street, Main Street banks at the regional banks, and I think going back to the whole idea of confidence, we have not solved that problem. There is fragility in the system, and a small business cannot operate with 250,000 at multiple regional banks. That is just not going to work. And so we very much are looking for a solution there. And it, it may take a while. We're hearing, obviously, that the government is studying. Um, I was only a public policy major in college, so I don't know how long studying happens to last. But I can certainly t- say that small businesses are concerned and you're actually seeing a lot of money move to money market government funds, not the prime funds. And I think that's a big heads up that small businesses are very concerned with what's going on with regionals.
1: This is a reason why, Lindsay, a lot of economists are trying to game out ongoing distress in the financial system and how many rate hikes that's equivalent to, right? What kind of credit tightening that implies? Bloomberg Economics coming out with 50 basis points of a rate hike. From your vantage point, how much of a tightening feature is this? How much does this really impact credit quality that forces you to increase your expectation for credit spreads, for risks, for defaults?
3: Yeah, it's hard to put an exact number on it. I think we're all trying to figure out what this looks like, but absolutely the credit box has tightened here. Lending standards are going to be much stricter going forward because you have this deposit flow. Um, I think what's so different about the flavor of this crisis, if you want to call it that, and banking this time around is just how fast the money is and how digital it is. I mean, we can all move money in our own accounts from our phone with just a press on the screen. That was not the 08 experience so what we're seeing here is definitely that the risk of a recession has ticked up um it's a question of how much certainly we're seeing some resolve this morning in europe uh european corporates are 20 basis points tighter this morning things feel better as you mentioned yields kind of across governments whether it's in the us or abroad are higher so there seems to be a little bit uh of, of less concern Um, But we've got a lot to figure out as we wait here to hear what the Fed is going to do tomorrow and what they kind of tell us they're going to do in the future.
2: You mentioned speed. Matt Britt of Invesco talked about that with us yesterday, and I think it's an important point. Just a reminder of how quickly some of these institutions can fail. And Lindsay, with that in mind, he pointed out that that's not the same as an industrial. That's not the same story. There should be maybe a valuation gap between these different industries now, similar to what we saw after 2008. And Lindsay, the question I asked Matt was ultimately how long that can last? How long does that take to ultimately resolve that gap that opens up between one industry and all the rest?
3: Yeah, there is no reason that industrials and banks have to trade on top of each other. In fact, historically, banks traded through industrials. A trade that we've really liked since last year was owning banks versus industrials because you are compensated with more spread. But I think going back to what we said in the very beginning, what is crucial is that it's what banks that you own. Um, and so much that I, I think we believe in in terms of active management is teasing out who are going, which which balance sheets are going to do well. And I think we've just got a, a clear support here for the big banks. And so the big banks can rally.
2: Got to squeeze it in, Lindsay. You mentioned the Fed. Where are you and the team tomorrow? 25, nothing?
3: We are, uh, our, our base case is 25. I think that base case is not with a, a major degree of confidence because there's there's a lot of concerns. Um, I don't think though we are in the camp that if the Fed were to pause, we don't think that the suggestion there is that there is a crisis of brewing and they know something that we don't know. I think you discussed this with Greg on Sunday night. Um, Instead, if they pause, I mean, they can pause, right? They have another chance to hike six weeks from now. So it's not like they pause and they're never allowed to hike. Um, They have that flexibility. That's part of their doctrine. And I think we shouldn't panic if we see them pause. Personally, I'd like them to pause. I'd like them to see some time in between for us to work out what's been happening in the banking sector. All this happened in this past week and last week, right? So we get a little bit of a breather to figure out what's going on with markets. Yep. That's just my two cents.
2: Lindsay, thanks for that. Lindsay Rosener there of PGM. What's I like your description concern? of the Fed meeting. I don't know, do you know? I don't know, do you know? <laughs> Christian Williglissman might know, Managing Director for Portfolio Strategy, at Goldman Sachs. Christian joins us right now. Christian, wonderful to hear from you, sir. Welcome to the program. This came from Dario Perkins over in London this morning from TS Lombard. He said central banks are stuck between the ghosts of the 70s and their PTSD from 2008. He said, I reckon PTSD wins out. What do you reckon?
4: Yeah, it certainly looks like that. I mean, certainly near term. I mean, not to forget the inflation normalization progress would have been very slow anyhow. And, and I think to some extent, you know, we were quite confident and markets were quite confident. Inflation expectations never unanchored um, like they did in the 70s. And, and so there was this, this kind of calm and inflation credibility you carried on. Um, so I think the bigger concern is really um, banking systemic stress again. So I would also lean towards um, uh, kind of GSC-type concerns uh, dominating right now.
1: How do you play through the concern versus the opportunity versus saying, okay, when you smell blood in the water, sometimes it's time to pounce?
4: Yeah, I mean, as always, you want to see um, some type of overshoots. You want to see some type of asymmetry um, arising, and I'm not quite sure we're there yet. The challenge you had. was that coming into the year, people were getting quite excited, um, despite the fact that you're late cycle, despite the fact that the Fed has pushed up the cost of capital materially, there was the sense that the US can deal with it. It's resilient. As you showed earlier, the spot data is still resilient and you had China reopening, Europe um, having less of an energy crisis. So our risk appetite indicator went up to kind of 0.7, which is one of the higher levels. So that has now unwound but you're not really at bearish levels. Um, and I think what really worries me is risk premium. Um, the rates markets are very clearly sending us a very bearish signal. Like you have the front end pricing cuts from the Fed. You have bull steepening in the two 10s curve. All of those are signals that recession risk is being pulled forward. But if you look at risk premium, especially equity risk premium, they're quite low. So I'm not quite sure we have that type of asymmetry, that type of um, washout, where you can really say there's a huge amount of opportunity.
1: What are you looking at, though, to buy if that volatility does sort of start to wash out, the European banks or the U.S. banks?
4: I mean, that's quite quite interesting um, discussion because banks, there's clearly stress here and and there is more overshoots in terms of valuations, in terms of credit. So I think... um, At the margin that is an area where you can look but the uncertainty is huge and it's a very leveraged business model and and systemic stress is 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 kind of going in waves at this juncture so it's a bit early but if you ask me which banks to go for it feels the european banks have a slightly different setup because they have less of a liquidity problem. They had a systemic capital concern, a profitability problem. Um, And I think that seems to have uh, been been put under control, Um, whereas uh, I think from a deposit side of things, you have less pressure, you have less liquidity pressure. There's a different setup. There's not even that many money market funds in Europe um, where actually savers could park their cash. So it feels like there's a slightly different problem. In the U.S., that problem might linger a bit longer, especially if the Fed Tightening.
2: Well, Christian, how much of a challenge is that bull steepener in the yield curve to the bank's call you're ultimately making?
4: Yeah, I mean, like, as I said, like the US banks, I don't think they're completely in the clean yet. I mean, that bull steepening, as you know, was probably exacerbated by positioning, um, where you had this enormous rates volatility driven by macro investors unwinding. Um, these hawkish calls into the central bank season. So so we need to see whether it does settles if that bull steepening continues. It also comes from very inverted levels. We find that the risk to equities increases the more the yield curve bull steepens. So right now it's at very inverted levels has bull steepened a bit. If that process continues, I would be careful to take any cyclical risk and, and you would certainly expect equities would underperform bonds. Do
2: you have a base case right now though, Christian? Because from what you're saying, it sounds like perhaps the situation in Europe might have been a head fake and you'd expect further inversion again.
4: Yeah, I mean, it looks a bit like that. Our base case from The um, you know, both in Europe and in the US, is that we're not done yet on the, on the hiking cycles there's this idea of separation between um, systemic stress and, and, and inflation fighting. And if that's true, um, it's a bit premature to see that bull steepening, but we have to listen to the market a bit. I think the market certainly is worried that we reached a point where central banks are constrained um, to hike and where this financial conditions tightening, which has been relatively controlled for most of last year, driven by front-end rates, has become much less unpredictable, much less predictable and a bit more uncontrollable. And that means that you have much more risk of an error, you have much more risk of um, you know central banks having, having to backpedal.
2: Hey, Christian, thanks for that. Christian miller glisman there of Goldman.
0: timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, Finremember, Columbus, Ohio.
1: But let's really get into how we can understand the trajectory of inflation and how big of a battle it's going to be for the Federal Reserve, even as they have an eye toward the banks. Dean Mackey joining us right now, chief U.S. economist at Point72. Dean, what's your take on that? How do you understand the inflationary impulse and how much it's actually been dampened?
6: Well, I think the the recent data have suggested that inflation is not coming down as fast as the previous data might have suggested. And this does interfere with the Fed's narrative that that we're headed down uh, in a in a steady way down to three and a half percent on core PC by the end of the year and and even lower after that. Uh, The recent data just don't show much slowing. And I, I do think that is important to the Fed's decision this week.
1: So what does that mean in terms of them having to raise rates by 25 basis points and that that should be digestible for the markets?
6: I do think it's that the Fed is likely to raise rates by 25 basis points this week. Um, The data certainly point in that direction, whether it's the very strong employment data, the inflation data that's come out uh, less favorable for the Fed than expected, and actually GDP growth is is picking up in the first quarter. It's not slowing down uh, the way many had been expecting. Um, So the economic data are, are telling us very clearly that the Fed should be continuing to raise rates. Uh, Now, there's other factors the Fed's worried about, uh, but I think that's what's going to be the dominant force for the Fed. Uh, They think they have other tools to address banking system issues and problems at the banks, and that monetary policy should be aimed at getting inflation back to target.
1: You know, my favorite thing about this moment, Dean, is that you have five guests on, they all say something completely different and then say you're looking at the wrong data. And some people will come on and they'll say, OK, sure, that backward looking data shows resilience and a sense of inflation that hasn't died down nearly enough. And other people say, yeah, you got to keep looking at that because it's been right. So where do you sort of make the argument that you have to consider this data that may be backward looking but really gives you some clean sense of where we are now?
6: I think the data tells us where we were coming into this past two weeks and and that and where we were is an economy that was growing at a a pretty strong rate. Uh, The unemployment rate very low and inflation way above what the Fed wants it to be. Um, Now, the Fed has to think about does the last two weeks events mean that the data don't matter anymore? I think it's too strong to say that. I think the Fed will be thinking about how much credit tightening is going to be happening as a result of the problems at the banks. But unless the Fed is convinced that there's going to be a sudden and severe stop in credit, that means no further rate hikes are required. I think the Fed will go ahead with their steady uh, rate hikes this week.
1: Some people argue that de facto there will be a credit tightening by some of these medium-sized banks that are going to restrict who they loan to and how much they lend. You make a, an argument that that doesn't necessarily mean some sort of sudden curtailing of economic activity. Can you elaborate on why that's an important, uh, important realization to inform what the Fed has to do and respond
6: I think, you know, one has to think about what's happening at the banks. Um, You know, the the very large banks don't seem to be having a problem with extending credit at this time, at least in a way that would cause a sudden stop in credit. Uh, There is credit tightening in general going on like there usually is in a Fed tightening cycle. But small and medium-sized banks, the the real question is, does the typical small and medium-sized bank out there have a severe deposit outflow right now that's going to cause them to make to say we're not making more loans at all. You know, that would be what a severe and sudden stop in credit would look like. And that would, in a sense, cause the Fed to, to immediately stop tightening if that became apparent. Um, my perception, you know, from, from various things is that that's not happening right now. It certainly is happening at some of the troubled banks, but most medium and small size banks uh, do not have severe deposit outflow problems right now. And therefore, they are likely to continue to make some credit available to uh, businesses and households. If that's right, then there is more of a gradual credit tightening process underway rather than a severe and sudden stop.
1: So how far away are we from going back to a no landing discussion or going back to this idea that we could just softly glide path lower, regardless of some of the recent troubles that we've seen at banks?
6: You know, I think that's something that we'll be sorting out in the coming weeks. Uh, you know, if, if I'm right that this is more of a gradual credit tightening process, then the very strong economic data that we've been seeing does continue to matter. And this will be a headwind against that strength in the data. And I do think there are some forces pushing uh, the economy forward that are underappreciated, like the continued normalization of the service sector, which continues to add jobs at a tremendous pace every month. Um, And also, I think the strength of the consumer matters here as well. Uh, So, you know, if those matter in terms of the momentum of the economy, the credit tightening is pushing against that. And what we'll be trying to do is weigh those two opposing forces going forward.
1: So what do you make of this narrative table tennis, as James Athey put it? I mean, what do you make of this idea that people are just basically turning themselves in, in circles, trying to understand the moment to moment gyrations in a market that is more volatile than it's been for decades.
6: I mean, it I, to me, it just reflects the difficulty of the situation. We're de- dealing with an unknowable amount of financial stress. You know, how bad is it going to get in the next two weeks how bad is the credit tightening that results from this financial stress going to be? It's These are very difficult things and markets are struggling to, to figure it out. Um, So we all have our own individual views on things, but the market's kind of bouncing back and forth, trying to figure out which narrative is correct.
0: One of the
1: biggest issues, Dean, and I'd love to to get your thoughts before we have to go, about the longer term trajectory of inflation. This question of are we heading back to a 2% inflation kind of reality, which is really what the market is pricing in if you take a look at the 5 and 10 year inflation expectations. Or are we heading into something where this Federal Reserve will tolerate a much higher pace of inflation to avoid some of the disruptions that we've seen in the banking sector?
6: I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why this week will be an important signal from the Fed. If the Fed is actually putting inflation front and center I think it is important to, for them to continue to to tighten conditions and signal that that is our, our main focus at this point. If the Fed does uh, seem to be distracted and focused more on other issues than inflation, you know, then then I do think this this uh, impression that the Fed is going to allow inflation to persistently run above target will gain traction.
1: Dean Mackie of Point72, thank you so much.
2: Ellen Walt joins us now, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council. Ellen, can you tell us how important it is, how dependent shale producers are on regional banks in America?
7: Well, I'm not, I'm not going to totally speculate on just how dependent they are, but I'm going to guess that um, a lot of them have actually probably reduced some of the exposure that they might ordinarily have been facing, given the fact that for some time now we've seen lenders tightening uh, and, and not, you know, shelling out capital to oil producers. You know, they, this is an industry that's gone through a huge amount of consolidation uh, over the past, you know, decade essentially, or, or or a little less than a decade, and so I I venture that they're probably not quite as exposed as, say, some of the the startups in, in the Silicon Valley area are. Um, my my, de- my concern is definitely on the you know the demand side uh, and the supply side. It's it's a very interesting crisis because we're not really seeing that much in terms of a, a change in the supply demand forecast, but prices have moved
1: substantially, uh, and and forecasts for prices are also uh, on the move. Talking about the read-through from the banking crisis, I'll give you another perhaps somewhat fantastical scenario. What happens if the Middle East investors that lost money in some of these banking issues, I'm thinking of Mohammed bin Salman and Saudi Arabia, suddenly want prices to be higher? If they've lost money in markets this year, what if they actually don't want to produce more oil because they want prices to go up? How much is that a feature in the OPEC response mechanism to all this? I would say that's definitely of
7: concern. I think that OPEC... Definitely, or or at least Saudi Arabia has a particular range that they like to see prices in, and I do think that that triple digits to them are too high because that then threatens them on the demand side. So, you know, if prices hit eighty this summer, I think that that's still in a good range for them, and they're not going to be making any kinds of uh, supply cuts. Now, if we see a sudden drop in oil prices due to, say, a, a major global financial crisis, then uh, we should definitely look for. OPEC to act just like they did in 2008 to kind of protect uh, oil prices. What I think is is more interesting here is they definitely see this and they came out with some comments uh, last week that, um, you know, this is mostly a financial issue. They don't see it as a supply demand issue. So how would changing supply and demand uh, impact uh, the market? What I I see is an interesting potential, though, is the U.S. has the potential to impact the demand side because we've got the U.S. government having said that once oil gets to a certain range, they want to rebuy for the SPR. Uh, Could you imagine what a major influx of demand from the U.S. government could do to uh, oil prices right now would essentially be saying, you know, here's a huge surge in demand that we weren't necessarily expecting and um, we are in a situation where supply demand is pretty tight or at least expected to be pretty tight. Uh, and that could definitely be a factor uh, that could push oil prices up if uh, you know nothing else is.
2: And I'm really happy that Lisa brought up the Middle East because we talked about a quote in the Financial Times this morning. I'm going to share that quote with you. Ultimately, the FT put together this wonderful story of developments over the weekend to secure that deal between UBS and Credit Suisse. And the Saudis have been burnt. Let's be clear about that. They were the top shareholder, Saudi National Bank. This is the quote in the story, according to one person close to one of the three major shareholders of Credit Suisse. You make fun of dictatorships and then you can change the law over the weekend. What's the difference between Saudi Arabia and Switzerland now? It's really bad. You know about the kingdom, you wrote the book. How do you think this might change investment decisions from Saudi Arabia?
7: Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective, and I definitely think that the, the idea of, of changing the law over the weekend is absolutely something that we see, you know, that, that we expect uh, to come from a, a dictatorship. We don't expect, you know, this is a monarchy. They don't really run by rule of law. Um, you know, they they generally, I think, because they want to be seen as a stable force and they want to be seen like, like other Western economies, tend to try to adhere to kind of global uh, principles. But when it comes down to it, they're not. They don't have to go through any kind of, uh, you know, real legal processes. And I think that if the Saudi government or the Saudi royal family is hurting for money due to, you know, investments or or particularly bad investments, uh, I definitely think that you could look to see them potentially try to recoup that from uh, what really is the Saudi cash cow Aramco. Uh, Aramco had a banner year. They're flush with cash. And uh, would you really be surprised to see if the, you know, you know, Saudis tried to or the royal family or the, the, the government tried to kind of raise their, um, you know, their dividend or whatnot from the company in order to make up for uh, a potential shortfall caused by some bad uh, investments.
1: Ellen, just real quick here, 30 seconds. Is there another implication in terms of what Saudi Arabia is willing to invest in globally as they try to diversify away from just oil streams of revenue?
7: Yeah, I think that they they're investing all over the place, and I don't think that this is going to stop them. In fact, I think that this probably speaks to the fact that they need uh, more diversity, and they feel like they've got a lot of cash and they want to invest it.
2: Ellen, thanks for joining us, as always. Alan Wold, there, the brilliant Alan Wald of the Atlantic Council on the situation with Saudi Arabia.
0: Taking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, Finremember, Columbus, Ohio.
1: We are joined by somebody who with intimate knowledge through the cycles, as well as understanding how to play in some difficult moments, Dan Greenhouse, Chief Strategist at Solus uh, Alternative Asset Management. How are you understanding, Dan, the bank distress that we've seen so far and how far it goes?
8: Well, listen, we're still in the early stages of this. I think it's pretty clear. Uh, we've got a couple of banks having already failed, another couple of teetering, but, but it's it, it, it's pretty clear that there are these I don't want to use the word systemic, but there are these issues that are plaguing a number of banks that are gonna result in a number of outcomes. It's gonna be a compression in net interest margins, as these banks have to pay up to attract deposits. It's gonna be a decrease in loan growth, which, while not necessarily a, a substitute for rate hikes, is gonna somewhat do the Fed's job for it in curtailing economic activity. It's gonna be a higher regulatory burden on, on those mids I dare I say mid-sized, but the, the hundred billion plus size banks. And it's probably going to mean consolidation in the sector as well. What it, what it means for the economy at large it's, is, is, in my mind, probably only going to be negative through, through that loan channel. I think there's a, a lot of people running around talking about how this is in 2008, as if that's somehow uh, okay. But while the issue itself is not at all arising to the 2008 levels, I think in, in an environment that is now characterized by elevated interest rates, what's happening in the banks isn't going to make things any better from an economic standpoint either.
1: You raise a really important point, Dan, and I don't think that this has been emphasized enough. People talk about what's going on as being a sort of temporary tightening, that they're going to pull back on some of their credit expansion, at least in the near term, as some of these banks decide uh, how much they can count on deposits. But you're talking about a longer term consequence of less lending. Can you talk a little bit about which sectors of the economy that affects the most, which sectors of the economy these banks tend to dominate in when it comes to credit expansion?
8: Well, we know, that, and I'm certainly not the first one to say it, and I won't be the last, but we know that the commercial real estate market, which is already weak, is probably going to be weaker. A lot of the smaller and mid-sized banks do most of the lending. I, I, I forget the exact number, but even though smaller banks have only about 40% of the bank existence deposits, they represent about 50% of the total loan book for the economy as a whole. So they punch above their weight in that respect, certainly with Relation to their deposits, and and the first point you have to to look at is, is the office market and the commercial real estate market. There are there's something going on in the cities right now that's going to have, um, it's going to take multiple quarters, if not multiple years, to fully play play out as some of these leases reset. And you can see this in the public markets for those very large office reits. Uh, they're they're telling you something is not right, and and this type of a situation obviously doesn't doesn't aid that aspect of the economy at all. It's 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 quite negative, to say the least.
1: What does something is not right mean when it comes to the trajectory of the economy in terms of when we see a recession, how deep it will be, what we look like on the other side?
8: Well, from an office standpoint specifically, we know that depending on which city we're talking about, the, re- the return to office, if you will, is running anywhere from 40 to 60%. There are some cities that are less, there are some cities that are more. But let's round and say that on balance in the office market across the country, and certainly in the, in call it the 10, 20 or 30 largest markets, you only have about half of people back to work in any regular capacity at all. So, so that, that as those leases roll off, uh, everyone's going to be dealing with the repercussions of, of what that means from, from a lending standpoint, from a, from an occupancy standpoint, from a bank regulatory standpoint, that that's that sector specifically for the economy as a whole. I haven't done the work myself, so I'm not going to lie and say that I know exactly how it how it pans out. But but the the curtailment of loan activity, which is probably going to persist for several quarters now, is not going to take a, uh, a a weak economic or an increasingly weak economic environment and make it any better. The Fed, as we know, has, has uh, interest rates at elevated levels. I don't think they should raise rates tomorrow, but neither do I think that that is the end of the tightening cycle, because inflation is still running at, at quite elevated levels. And and to to repeat a point I've made uh, numerous times, and it can't be said enough, yes, the year over year rate is coming down, but the month over month rate, either at the headline or at the core or at super core, is at concerning levels from the Fed standpoint, and that's much more consequential for what the Fed should do. So so even though in the immediate They may pause uh, raising rates tomorrow. And I think ultimately that would be the right decision. Uh, When you're dealing with 0.4, 0.5, 0.6% readings on CPI, uh, there's very little they can do in terms of easing to, to alleviate this crisis at all.
1: So your vantage point is coming from Solus, which is an alternative asset management uh, company that oversees distressed debt opportunities as well as uh, long opportunities. I'm curious where you're sort of seeing the most potential at a time when a lot of people are struggling to get their hands around exactly what the end result will be.
8: Well, I don't think the the full ramifications of this this episode have, has, has fully played out as of yet, and that's going to take a couple of quarters to do so, in what form and exactly what sectors, uh, obviously, we'll be on guard for. In the meantime, I think there are plenty of opportunities for a fund like ours. I mean, obviously, you would like to see exponentially more distress, exponentially more defaults, which we don't have as of today, but there are still plenty of sectors of the economy that look attractive to us without weighing in at all about what we own or what what we may be doing, uh, there's there's uh, a, a, the change in behavior in office I mentioned is something worth exploring. Who are the winners and losers there? On the content and the media distribution side of things, there's a change in behavior there that I don't think people are appreciating with what it means for the streaming services and the movie theaters and the vendors and those types of companies uh, in the travel and leisure space, hotel, cruises, um, skiing, and, and those sorts of sectors of the economy, there's a tremendous shift going on in consumer behavior. And, and so there, in each one of those sectors and others, there are clear winners and losers on both the debt and the equity side of things. And, and our job is obviously to sift through them to find out where there are mispricings and exploit them. And again, even though we haven't seen the full ramifications of this of this episode, in the meantime, I think we're we, we're actually pretty busy. And uh, I think there's plenty of stuff to, to be looking at and exploring.
1: In the aftermath of the great financial crisis, one of the most lucrative trades was Lehman claims. They were claims from Lehman Brothers after they collapsed, and the returns were pretty astronomical. I'm wondering, Dan, if there's an analog here with the AT1s, with the contingent capital bonds, maybe not from Credit Suisse, but from other banks that possibly um, don't look money good for a second, and then all of a sudden the regulators step in and say, actually, it's a pretty bad precedent to set. Is that something that looks like it has potential as other investors see this as uninvestable?
8: Well, if there's as I'm now midlife uh, finance, in terms of my work and career, I will say that, that uh, uh, the bad precedent to be set is set in every crisis. and, and uh, never put it past lawmakers to set bad precedent and exploit these opportunities to quote unquote change the rules. Uh, with respect to the AT1 market, uh, listen, that, that story is clearly unfolding. You can see in the performance of, of the various bank entities who has better language in their documents than others, Uh, I I don't know that we're not traditionally a a financial fund, so I don't want to say that we have any particular expertise in this, but clearly, uh, that market is going to be ripe for exploitation going forward. I think it's going to be very, I mean, at the outset, it, it looks like it's going to be very difficult for investors to, to not think that there is additional downside to say the least, uh, to those investments. And again, that's not a small market that's 250, 270 billion, depending on how you measure it. And, and considering 16, 17 billion of them were just wiped out when when people did not think that was what was going to happen, uh, I think people are going to be taking a much closer look at the rest of that market.
1: Just real quick here, does it also change the investment investing landscape for all things Switzerland if they're willing to change the documents on something like this, or perhaps interpret it creatively?
8: Well, to get back to my other point, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't comment about Switzerland specifically since that's no particular expertise of mine. But but for governments as a whole uh there's a very famous saying if you don't like the law get a new lawyer and i think whether it was 08 uh or the european debt crisis early in the 2010s <clears throat> excuse me or, or what's happening now among others uh lawmakers and policymakers and politicians have never failed to change the rules to suit their their needs and in some cases that's the right course in some cases it's not but uh, i think everybody has to understand that that in a crisis is is likely to be the outcome
1: Dan Greenhouse. Thank you so much for being with us. Dan Greenhouse of Solus Alternative Asset Management. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg.